0: So this morning I got here and I did my routine of uh, get here and I take my computer and print out the sermon and it printed the three sheets. They were all blank. I'm like, what's going on? I printed it again, blank. That was only five minutes before I stood up. So now I'm coming up here this time and thinking I'm I'm not quite where I was for service. Um, I'm getting a little twitchy thinking about it though. But we're coming to the end of John's gospel today I don't know how how you feel about that, but uh, I I know personally I will forever associate the season that we have been through as a church with COVID and and all the challenges of this last year or so. I'll always associate with with the gospel of John. God was so good to lead us to this book and then the way that he faithfully led us during this season uh, through this book. And we we don't take ourselves too seriously, but at the same time, we, we, we take quite seriously. Like, God, what would you have for us in the next season? And uh, so for this next season, we've been thinking about it, praying about it, and we're going to step into Romans. We're going to look at chapters 12 to 16. I think many of us are familiar with chapter 12, but it usually stops there for some reason. Uh, but 13, 14, 15, and 16, I think, are incredibly pertinent For us as a church, especially in this time, so we'll start that next week. But today, John 21, and really the way that John writes this gospel, he has a prologue at the beginning, this this lengthy introduction to just kind of introduce us to the themes and, and the main characters of his gospel, and then at the end, he has an epilogue, or what we might call a P.S., and think about when you write something to someone, And then at the end, you put a P.S. At least when I do that, uh, the P.S. is usually very important or I wouldn't be doing it. Sometimes it's the most important thing that I'm trying to communicate. And I think that's very true of of what John is doing here. uh, Because when you read the the last verse of chapter 20, uh, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, it just feels like, okay, the end. But it's not. There's a PS. And this PS is very important. It's John 21. It's the text that Nate read for us. And this text takes place in one of my favorite places in the whole world. Uh, It says the Sea of Tiberias, but it's actually, uh, that's another name for it. Um, It's the Sea of Galilee. Uh, It's just beautiful. It's shalom. It's peaceful. It's where so much of the gospel story takes place and you can still kind of feel that and sense that and smell that in the air. Um, But let me just show you on a map where this is. So this is a map of Palestine in the first century. Galilee is a region. It's that region that's in red. And then you can see kind of In the heart of the right part of that region is that blue. That's a lake. That's the Sea of Galilee. Galilee itself, that red region, the disciples would call that region home. This is where they were born. This is where they were raised. This is where they do life. Jesus, too, was born and raised in Galilee uh, in the Nazareth Hills, which is 20 miles from the lake. Galilee is Jesus' home. It's where he has done all of his adult life. And the Gospels tell us that he switches his home from Nazareth in the hills uh, to a village on the lake. He, he moves 20 miles to a village called Capernaum, and that becomes his home base. This whole north, northern shore too of this lake is where Jesus does a lion's share of his ministry. Uh, and I think I have a picture so you can just kind of see this. This is from on, on high on our bell. I have our groups always hike this so we can look at that northern shore. Because I've heard some scholars say, some of my teachers say, that as much as 75 to 80% of Jesus' miracles and his teaching all took place in that space that you're looking at right there. Uh, the villages, Capernaum, Bethsaida, Corinth, Coritzan, Magdala are all in that region that you're looking at. Uh, It's along the northern shore where Jesus first called the disciples. Uh, That region is also where the feeding of the 5,000 takes place. It's where Jesus preached in synagogues. It's where Jesus also preached outdoors, sermons like the Sermon on the Mount. Um, This is why Jesus' first instruction to his disciples to Mary, go tell my brothers, I will meet them in Galilee. In other words, let's get out of Jerusalem. Let's go home. And let's spend our last days in what we all call home. And you have to understand, leaving Jerusalem for Galilee in that time would be like a two-day journey. So this would be the equivalent of if you as your family went down to Florida to experience spring break or Christmas break. And now it's time to go home to Michigan. Why do I say all this? To highlight the fact that the disciples being in Galilee in John 21 tells us that the disciples are doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. They're here, not in Jerusalem. And they're waiting for Jesus. And there's another thing that I, I find fascinating. I love this because scholars too who make use of all the historical, textual, and archeological data can pinpoint exactly where the disciples return. They return to the same exact beach where Jesus first called Peter, Andrew, and John. that's why in lieu of this, to this day, you have a chapel that was built there a couple hundred years. Uh, You had a chapel and it's still there, built by the Catholics, um, as kind of an X marks the spot. Uh, This is the spot where Jesus first called Peter, Andrew, and John, and it's also the spot of today's text in John 21. So I love this because Jesus tells the disciples to return to Galilee, but he doesn't specify where in Galilee to return, and Peter says, guys, this is where we're going. Let's go to the very spot where Jesus called us to be his disciples. And if you know that story, too, I mean, this is that story where, where where Jesus says to Peter, Peter, come follow me. And the text says that Peter dropped his nets. He left his nets behind and he followed Jesus. Then it says, keep reading, he walked a little further down the beach and he saw Andrew and John said the same thing to them, come follow me. They did the same thing. They left their nets, they dropped them and they followed Jesus. Jesus. And see, what the Bible wants us to see is this imagery of dropping the nets because this is discipleship language. It's the essence of what a disciple is. A disciple is someone who drops their nets because those nets represent their life. It's, it's where they find their satisfaction, their security, their meaning, their identity, all those things. And think about it. There are all kinds of things that we right now can turn to for life and satisfaction, security, meaning, for identity, and whatever those things are, those are our nets. And a disciple is someone who drops their nets and leaves them behind so they can follow Christ. They can set their heart fully on him where Christ now becomes their life. Christ now is the source of their joy and their satisfaction. Christ is is, is where their whole identity is derived from. It's derived from Christ and living for Christ, living for his kingdom, living out his kingdom in the world for the sake of the world. That's a disciple. Have you dropped your nets? I mean, what have you laid down? What have you left behind? Who or what right now do you live for? What's, what do you turn to for your satisfaction and your security? From who or what do you derive your, your identity? See, these guys did this. And Jesus, as a result, changed them from the core of their being. He changed the whole trajectory of their life. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, you're a fisherman. I'm going to make you a fisher's of men. Because here's the the deal. There's two ways to be a fisherman. I can be a fisherman to make money to have a career, to make a name for myself. Or I could be a fisherman where that's simply the excuse or the means by which I am a disciple and carry out the kingdom of heaven. Those are two radically different things. Because for a Christ follower, and I say this right now because I think that's what we all desire to be. Christ followers. For a Christ follower, money. Money is just money. A house is just a roof over our heads. And our careers are simply the excuse or the means by which we can best carry out the kingdom of heaven. So here are the disciples. They're on the beach waiting for Jesus it becomes night, and in verse 3, Peter says to the guys, I'm going fishing. Now, I think there's more to this statement than we, than, than, than we first see, because this is more than Peter being bored and let's just go fish. This is more than Peter returning even to his old profession. This is Peter returning to his old life. It's Peter going back to those nets, putting those nets back in his hands, those nets that he laid down to follow Jesus. Now listen, he's doing this not because Peter has given up on Jesus. Oh no, that's why Peter is in Galilee and he's waiting for Jesus. He has not given up on Jesus. But what Peter is thinking is that Jesus has given up on him. And what disciple wouldn't think that? No disciple could do what Peter did. What Peter did would disqualify any disciple, it would get them cut from the team. Because not only did Peter disown Jesus, as bad as that was, think about this. For six hours as Jesus hung on that cross, Peter's a no-show. He's hiding, protecting himself at a time when Jesus most needed his friends. So Peter, right now, knows it's done, it's over. I've butchered any chance I have with Jesus. And the other six who are there, they join Peter in fishing because they did the same thing Peter did. They abandoned their master. Only John is the, is the only disciple who showed up at the cross. So they all go back to fishing. And it's night. This is when fishing was done, done in that part of the world. And they, go, they do the whole night fishing, uh, they don't catch a single thing. And I love verse 4. Listen to how it starts. Just as the sun begins to break. I mean, feel the joy of those words. Because as that sun now peaks over the hills, the light of the world is standing on the beach and his light is about to shine into their darkness. But Jesus is still a stranger to them and he yells out to them, friends, but this is not... The normal word for friend. The normal word for friend is the Greek word philo. This is a very unique form of friend. It literally means dear children. It's part of the slang of that culture. It is the most intimate way the most intimate friends would address each other. You'd never say this to a stranger. If you said said this to a stranger, they would just think you're you're weird. Um, but 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 if in your, your closest friendships, this is how you would address someone, my children. It was a it was it was a term of affection and deep love. Dear children, do you have any fish? And they yell back, no. And Jesus tells them something that I think would be very insulting because they've been fishing all night. Try the other side of the boat. (laughs) Oh, like they didn't try that 20 times in the last four hours. (laughs) But this text, as we read, says they did it and they get such a haul of fish. In fact, verse 53 gives us these strange details. 153 large fish. Why does John put this detail in his gospel? I'll tell you why. Because John 21 is here as a PS, as an epilogue, for disciples of Jesus to paint a picture of what the church is to be in the world, for the world. So already about a couple hundred years after Jesus, uh, the church father, Augustine, commenting on this text, wrote that the Greek academy at that time determined that there were 153 species of, species of fish. <laughs> Do you see the picture? Or how about this? If, if you asked a schooled rabbi, even, even today, but this, this would go all the way back uh, well before the time of Jesus, if you would ask them, um, is, does, does the number 153 show up in your text, their text being the Old Testament, they would take you to Ezekiel 47. Because here's something that, that the Jewish rabbis do, they, they, they play around with numbers a lot more than we as Christians do in their interpretations and part of the reason for this is because their alphabet also serves as their numerals. So the first letter of their alphabet is Aleph, the second uh, letter of their alphabet is Bet. that's where we get the word, the term alphabet, Aleph, Bat. Um, Aleph is their number one, Bet is their number two, and so on. And so, as their eyes look at every Hebrew word, they're also seeing numbers, numerical values. They can't help it. So, in the book of Ezekiel, this is the period uh, where, where there is no temple because the Babylonians destroyed the temple. In Ezekiel 40, uh, the prophet Ezekiel gets this vision of the new temple. It's stunning, it's spectacular. Then in Ezekiel 43, he describes the Shekinah glory of God entering that temple and filling that temple. Then in Ezekiel 47, it describes this little trickle of living water that flows out of the temple down the southern stairs into the Kidron Valley, making its way into the desert, going all the way down to the Dead Sea. This trickle of water as it goes becomes a stream. And by the time it hits the desert, it is this mighty river. And wherever it goes, think about it, the desert. The Bible says the desert is going to bloom. What Ezekiel sees, wherever this thing flows, the desert turns into something like a garden. Green. Flowers, trees on both sides of the river. And then it makes its way all the way down to the Dead Sea. And listen to how the prophet Ezekiel puts this uh, verses 8 to 10 of Ezekiel 47. This water flows, this living water flows toward the eastern region and makes its way down into the desert where it enters into the Dead Sea. It's called the Dead Sea because nothing lives in it. It's ten times more salty, maybe a hundred times more salty than the ocean. That's why people float when they go into it. And he said to me, This river flows all the way into the eastern region, goes down into the desert where it enters into the Dead Sea. When it empties into that sea, the salty waters there become fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the living water flows, everything will live. Listen to this verse. Fishermen, Will stand along the shore from Engedi to Enaglam, casting their nets. Engedi to Enaglam is the number 153 to the Hebrew eye. And then it says the fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. Do you see what Jesus is tapping into? Do you see the picture that's being painted? The stream of living water. That's us. That's God's people. And we are to flow in the most barren, desert-like places of our world turning those deserts into beautiful flourishing gardens turning even something as dead as the dead sea back to life into maim kaim living water and fishermen casting their nets onto the sea is part of this vision of Ezekiel 47 because i think it's a metaphor that captures the whole story of the Bible. Because the first time we read about sea is right at the beginning in Genesis one, and there the sea is the deep, it's chaos, it's the abyss, it's the metaphor then throughout the scriptures as the kingdom of darkness. So when Jesus yells out to these disciples, cast your nets, cast them, cast them on the right side, Fishermen casting their nets in the right place where Jesus taught us is a picture of the church. Are we casting our nets? Because it's what we're called to do. Because the business of God is to fish out, it's to rescue people from one realm and bring them into another realm, into a new realm. That's why Paul says in Colossians 1 verse 13, he says, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and he has brought us into the kingdom of the son that he loves. And he does this work of rescue through us of taking people out of one realm, the kingdom of darkness, and, and bringing them into the boat, into the kingdom of the sun that he loves. Now, when we think kingdom of the sun, kingdom of Christ, I think our minds automatically go to heaven. And of course, that is future. But what Jesus Is also talking about something for right now. For what the church is to be, what we're called to be and to do right now. Think boat. From there to the boat. Who's in the boat? Seven friends, disciples, intimate friends. That's what we're brought into. We're brought out of that and we're brought into the boat. Think about what Jesus calls them. He calls them the most affectionate term you can use for friends. That's to say the church is not often what we've made. it. It is not an institution. It is a community of friends. That's what we are. And that's why... In verse 2, it says, and they were together. This is not just a small detail. This is the essence of what the church is. That's why in Acts 2, when a church is first formed, that's the first thing it says about them. They were together. That's why in Acts chapter 4, it says they were together. That's why Hebrews 10 says, do not neglect the habit of meeting together. It's all over the New Testament. And this is why it's so important that we meet. That we gather. And I'm already getting hate mail for what I said in the first service. For this. It's okay. If we just have 12, it's okay. Jesus changed the world with 12. But when you look at those seven guys in the boat... Friends, intimate friends, disciples. We have to recapture this. If we're going to change the world, we need to become true friends. And then think about what our friendship is based upon. Is it based upon ethnicity, race? Nope. Is it based upon socioeconomic status? No. No. Is it based upon our education? Is it based upon our tribe? Is it based upon our politic? Is it based upon where a person lives? No, that's the way the world does friendship. But 2 Corinthians 5, 16 to 17 says, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We don't look at people anymore with a worldly lens because it says of what it says there next. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has gone the newest come. That's what we are. We are a community that sees everyone starting with ourselves through the lens of Christ crucified. Because it's only the cross that has the ability to kill all of our old paradigms of how we look at people, how we view people, how, how we put price tags on people. And it's, it's only the cross that has the power to create this new community, this new humanity of true friends. And see, what John wants us to see, that's why there's all these wonderful details, not just those 153 fish, but that the net that brought them in, it wasn't torn and the word in Greek for torn is the word schism. It's the same word that Paul uses when he's writing to the church in Corinth that's all divided over all these, all these because of all the worldliness that's in the, in the church and they're looking at each other through, through worldly lenses. Paul says, there is to be no schism, no division among you. Do you see the picture? 153 fish fish of every kind, and no schism. People from every tribe, nation, culture, and race packed into that boat, no division. And don't just look at who's in the boat, but look at what they're doing. They're fishing. And where are they fishing? Where? They're out on the face of the deep. They're in chaos. They're fishing the abyss. Which is why this this living to, to stay safe and to take care of me couldn't be more opposite for Jesus' vision for the church. And if you and I stay there too long, we're in danger of the kingdom of heaven passing us by. So if you're away from the boat right now, it might be time to get back in the boat. It takes a ton of faith to be a disciple in the boat on the face of the deep. Not running from chaos, but moving towards it, moving into it. And according to the Bible, the opposite of faith is not doubt. God is gentle with our doubts because true faith will always involve measures of doubt. It does. This is what Dan preached on last week. But from cover to cover of this book, the opposite of faith is fear. It's fear. We as Christians don't have the luxury to operate by fear. Because when we operate by fear, we're not having faith. And again, I know because our, 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 our world is so driven by feelings, you guys are thinking in terms of your feelings, but, but, but God is not thinking about feelings when he's talking about faith because faith, according to God, isn't feelings. It's not your feelings, it's your walk. And therefore, fear, it doesn't matter if you have feelings of fear, but what's your, what's your walk? That's faith. And this is why in Revelation 21, verse 8, when it describes those who are going to perish, the first description, those who are afraid, the fearful. See, God puts up with a lot of things, but he does not put up with our fear. In church, this is not a time for us to live out fear. Now, Peter because Peter is a big part of this text, and I'm not trying to go around Peter. Peter is here to show us what needs to happen in us for us to move from being fishermen to fishers of men. I think the moment that that stranger yells out, dear children, I think Peter's starting to wonder, could it be? Then the huge catch of fish. Remember, that's not the first time. In fact, the first time that this huge catch of fish happened is what precipitates Peter's first encounter with Jesus. Again, just like in our our John 21, the disciples fished all night, they caught nothing. Jesus shows up early in the morning. He yells out to them, hey guys, how about you try the other side? And they try the other side and they have so many fish that they can't even get all the fish in the boat. And that time when Peter got to shore, do you know what he did? Jesus comes walking to Peter and Peter's just like, get away from me, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. But you know what Jesus said to him in that moment? Jesus looked at him and said, Peter, follow Me. And I want us to hear what Peter heard because discipleship in that first century was literally a disciple would sign up to give their life to a rabbi with this idea that they were going to become just like the rabbi that they were following. So when Jesus actually says to Peter, Follow me, be my disciple, inherent is that in that call, is, is Jesus saying to Peter, Peter, I believe in you. In fact, I believe so much in you, I believe you can become just like me. This is probably the first time in Peter's life where he experiences love and grace, the love and grace of Jesus, Jesus looking at him as he's saying, I'm not worthy, get away from me, I'm a sinful man. And Jesus saying, I believe in you, Peter. I believe you can become just like me. And now in verses 3 to 6 of our text, Jesus is recreating that scene. It's Jesus reminding Peter, Peter, look, I know what you did, but I still, I believe in you, man. That's why this, this, this is one of my all-time favorite scenes in the whole Bible. When Peter realizes it's Jesus, instead of this time recoiling and saying, get away from me, he jumps in the water. I can just see him, his head down, and he is swimming with everything he has. He can't get to Jesus fast enough. spent three years with him. And I want that image of Peter swimming with all his might ingrained upon my mind forever because I want this to be the mark of my life. I want to be someone who swims with all the might that I have towards Jesus. Because Peter now is doing what he did the first time he met Jesus. He's he's dropping his nets again. He's letting go of them. I mean, this is one of the purest pictures of repentance in the whole Bible. He doesn't have to say it because what repentance is, it's not just something we do with our mouths. It's not just saying, I'm sorry. Repentance is is recognizing that we've made a mess of our lives or, or we've gone and done something we shouldn't do or we're stuck in something we shouldn't be stuck in. And we We repent, we 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 turn and we with all our might and everything we have, we go back to the to Jesus knowing he's like a father on the porch, or like the truest friend sitting on the beach, just waiting there with his arms wide open. Repentance is such a gift. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you said. I don't care where you are right now. I don't care how much of a mess that you've made of your life or other people's life. Right now, you can repent. And if you do so, there will be a father on the porch, a true friend on the beach with arms wide open to welcome you home. Now, when Peter gets to the beach, Jesus has recreated a second scene. Verse 4 it says, very early in the morning. Very early in the morning is when Peter failed Christ, when he disowned him. Jesus even takes it further. In verse 9, he creates a fire. In fact, it's not just a fire, it's a charcoal fire. The only other time charcoal fire is used is in John 18, verse 18, when Peter was watching Jesus being tried and he was gathered around with others around a charcoal fire. And you know how it is with smells. Like when you smell something that you haven't smelled for a long time, all of a sudden it just brings you back to that place where you first smelled that thing. Jesus just recreating the scene of Peter's betrayal. Because Jesus wants to bring Peter back into that dreaded place and and into that time. This time, Jesus is going to be right there with him. And if you're wondering to yourself right now, like, why is Jesus doing this? Why can't he just let bygones be bygones? Why can't he just accept Peter? It's because Jesus is going for something far more than just accepting Peter. Jesus wants to heal Peter. He wants to restore Peter. This is why it's around a meal. And this isn't just... Another breakfast. This is, in that culture, a sulha. A sulha, we've studied this before, is a specific specific kind of meal. It's a meal that takes place when two parties have hurt or injured each other. And so they sit down, and it's a meal of reconciliation. And when Jesus says, not once, but three times here, do you love me? He's also saying to Peter three times, Peter, you hurt me. That hurt. And see, again, what Jesus is doing is he is walking Peter through his failure. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me, Peter? You failed me. Do you love me, Peter? You let me down. Because this is how restoration takes place. It's not by acting like what Peter did was was no big deal. It was a huge deal. It's not just by Jesus saying, hey, Peter, I accept you now. It's doing what Jesus does. He literally plunges Peter fully. He immerses him in the full depths of his failure because what he wants Peter to taste is every last drop of it. And again, I know some of us right now are wondering, like, this seems kind of mean. Why would would Jesus hurt Peter like this? Listen, Jesus isn't hurting Peter. He's helping Peter. He's healing Peter. And our culture today is so confused about what what is helping someone and what is hurting someone. We think what is helping actually oftentimes hurts and what we think actually hurts. Hurts people, oftentimes the thing that helps and heals them. In this phrase, when Jesus says to Peter, Do you love me more than these? What's the these? I'll tell you that these are not the 153 fish that these are the disciples who are also gathered around that fire at this meal, hearing everything Jesus is saying, because a lot of times restoration like this needs to happen in community. But I think before Peter failed and disowned Jesus, I think in Peter's mind, Peter viewed himself as the best. <laughs> I'm the best disciple, Jesus. Jesus. That's why he says what he says that night before he betrayed Jesus. Jesus, I love you more than these guys. I'm not gonna betray you. Peter, do you love me more than these? Peter can no longer say, I love you more than these. All Peter can say is, I love you, Jesus. Because Peter is knocked off his high horse. Instead of looking at himself now as the best and how good Peter is, all of that self-importance, that pride, that self-righteousness, it's been shattered. It's been shattered because of his failure. And see, this is why if you think that God can't use failure in your life, you're wrong And I know why we think that, because in any other sphere of life, uh, whether it's a relationship, if you fail, it means rejection. Sometimes it might today even mean you're canceled out. If you fail at your job, you might get fired. If you uh, fail in a sport, you're probably going to get cut. Jesus forgives him. And not only does he forgive Peter, but he restores Peter. He gets Peter back on track for why Peter is made. Peter, I called you to be my disciple, to make fishers of men. This is why three times Jesus says to Peter, Peter, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Who's the shepherd of God's flock? Jesus. Jesus is the one who feeds the sheep. So, what did Peter hear Jesus say when Jesus says, feed my sheep, feed my sheep? Feed my sheep, he hears him saying, Be like me, be like me, be like me. And this is why Jesus culminates this whole thing then with this exclamation point Peter, follow me. I still believe in you, that you can become just like me. And I believe it's in this moment that the change in Peter is, is utterly complete. Because not just has a parent believed in him, or a coach, or a teacher, Jesus, Jesus did not give up on him. Jesus has come, follow me. I still believe in you. God can work with our failure. I'll push that further. God uses our failure. He uses our failure in the same way that He used it into so many greats in the Bible to make us into Peter's, David's, Moses's, all the greats failed. God used failure. You know what I love in verse 18? Jesus says, Peter, not only do I believe that you're going to become like me in your life, (laughs) you're going to be like me in your death. You're going to stretch out your hands, and one day, Peter, you're going to die. Tertullian, another church father who writes a couple hundred years after Peter's life, tells us that when Nero rounded up the Christians, he literally lit them up as human torches in the the streets, and there there, people would watch and the the city would be lit up because these Christians were being burned. When Peter got word of this, you can tell he's different. Instead of what he did the night of Jesus' crucifixion where he's hiding out, locking himself in an upper room, he makes his way to Rome to be with the Christians, to encourage them, to spur them on. Nero arrests him. And when Nero arrests him, he holds games that are free to the public in his favorite arena in the halftime show. Peter is brought out. The only thing Peter requested, I'm not worthy to die like my Lord. So they crucified him upside down. The one who loses their life is the one who finds their life. Jesus said, do not fear those who can kill your body, but fear the one who can kill your soul. This morning, if you didn't get it, this is a sulha. This is the meal that Jesus offers us And if you feel like you have failed and you have let him down and you want to repent, let's not take it right now. But right now, let's just enter a time of preparing our hearts for the suha suha that, uh, that Jesus offers us, this meal of reconciliation.